small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away, a song away. Hey, everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today from my high school days, this gentleman attended the first live concert with me that I ever saw, KISS, 1979. We'll talk about that a little bit. He's in Michigan right now. I'm going to tell you this. He is using an amazing mic. He's using the Shure SM7B, which is what we use here. But today, my mic is fucking up. So I'm using my uh, laptop mic. So I hope that works for you guys. I'm just warning you in advance that if I don't sound as good as my guest, that's why. But here we go. Please welcome my old friend from high school, Bump Hallbritter. How you doing, Bump? I'm doing great, Pat. Now the I, got a, I got a microphone that works. I'm happy. <laughs> uh, when I post this video, I might put this video up on our uh, high school Facebook page. Right. You look good. You got a great background there. You got all your guitars. I can see it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I got I got a couple of guitars out. How many guitars do you have? A bunch. Too few. Do you have twenty? Always too few. Twenty five. Twenty something like that. Twenty. How many? What's the most guitars you ever owned at a time? This is right now. This is the most I've ever had. Back when I was back when I was you know like when I was a musician when I was playing all the time. I um. I, I went through guitars like crazy, you know, I mean, like they would come and go. Um, I'd get tired of a guitar and it'd be gone because I could only carry so many with me at a time anyway. So yeah. I wasn't like, it wasn't, I wasn't in a, when I was working all the time, I wasn't like in a collecting kind of way, you know, now I got a basement that I can fill up with the damn thing. So it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and I'm here, for, I've been here for a while. So, you know, you just like every year, like nothing goes out. Every, only things come in. Come in. Like, I'm not, I'm not getting rid of anything at this point. What are you, Pete Townsend over there with all these guitars? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just... First thing I want to, I want to tell people is bump. Everyone calls you bump, but that's it's not true. on your birth certificate. No. What's it say on your birth certificate? Well, this is, so this is the story I have to give to my students all the time. All know? right. So, so, um, so on my birth certificate, it says Scott. However, before I was born, um, uh, my parents only ever referred to me as while I was gestating as the bump, you know, like as everybody, right? Everybody, Oh, you've got a baby bump. That's all in vogue. Now you can say that it's probably out at this point. It's been around so long, <laughs> but anyways, but that, I was, I was the bump. And so I was, when I was born, I was the bump. And, uh, but they needed a, something else. And so they had Scott tissues in the nursery. So I became Scott named after the tissue brand that was in the nursery. And, uh, so I always, you know, my, my folks never called me Scott. Never. I mean, they never called me that. It was always bumper bumper. And, uh, you know, and I, I I've kind of lived a life now that I've never had to grow up. Um, you know, I was a musician and now I'm, a, now I'm a professor. So I tell my students, you know, if you don't feel like you're getting your money's worth out of a guy named Bump, it's Dr. Bump. So, um, Professor Bump. Um, so that's, you know, it just, it's been one of the, I don't know, it's a stupid name, but it's just something that's just lived with me. And I've always identified with it more than, you know, the other name. It's like, I, I'm not kidding. It's like Sting. 
No one calls Sting only, Gordon. Only Sting's kind of cool. You know, I mean, that's like if you want, if you're going to come up with a cool name, like Sting's a pretty cool name. Sting like is, Bump is not a cool name. Well, okay, but if Sting was Bump, then we would think that was a cool name because he had it. Yeah, maybe, but Sting's kind of a cooler, just a cooler idea than you know than Bump. <laughs> well, I think you're cool. I think you are the perfect combination of intelligence and creativity because you are one of my most intelligent friends. I feel. Uh oh, I'm going to blow it now. I just know it. <laughs> I say stupid things the whole for the whole rest of the I'll hour. This is going to be stupid shit the whole time. I'll say the I'll say the stupid things because <laughs> when I came to high school, I came from Catholic school, and I was not prepared for school for public school as far as math and science went. I was not. And so many of the people I met, you guys were way ahead of me. You guys were like calculus and, tri you know, all this stuff. And I, I never got to that level because I wasn't prepared for it when I came in. So I, I feel like you're an intellectual. I really I gotta, do. I got a bunch of degrees. I don't know if I'm an intellectual yeah. or not. You know, I've got a bunch of degrees and I've written a bunch of shit. So, you know. Yeah. So you studied out. abroad. I did. Where did you go? Tell us. I went to the University of Manchester. Um, it was just one semester. I did my undergraduate degrees um, degree at Penn State, and uh, and one of the things that that you know, we had a, a another friend, a mutual friend, Bridget, mm -hmm. who went to England, and I'm like, fuck it, I got to go to England, right? And you know, I got to keep up with the Joneses, and uh, so I went and you know found a way that I could go to England for a semester. And use the credits uh, to graduate because that was my dad's stipulation. You got to use all the credits. Okay, now this is what I'm talking about right here. You're you're a teenager, and you're you figured out how to use the credits and get to England. Well, so, I I had right to figure here. out. I had to create a. I had to actually create a degree. <laughs> it was yeah. it was in general arts and sciences, and the guys like you seem like you're full of shit. So I think you can probably get by with a with a degree like general arts and sciences. You'll be able to talk your way through it. But here's the difference: you're you literally that, told me that you're doing that, and I'm sneaking into the drive-in theater with Schultz and Gallagher. I mean, it's a totally <laughs> different thing. You like yeah. had I feel like you had your eye on the prize. Yeah, at a young age, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, I was in bands. I just, I, I was working. I was a busy kid. That's the one you thing I busy do remember. Kid. I was really a busy kid. You know, I'm between playing in bands and writing songs, and you know, and and you know, and then going to school and working, and you know, it was, it was a busy time. You were on a local TV show too. You were on Action News for Kids. Yeah. That just popped in my head right now. The inaugural season. Actually, that was the thing that 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 was impressed the guy at Penn State to say, "I think you can uh, come. I think you're going to be okay with this this uh, you know major. That we're going to get you over there at Manchester. Don't you worry." Does any uh, videotape from Action News for Kids exist? I hope not. Oh, I, 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 I want to find it. There was probably there was. I remember one thing. I did this one remote for that show that um, I had to go and ride. I had to go to the Honda dealer, the Honda motorcycle dealer. And so they put me on like a little mini bike in the parking lot. I just had to go around a parking lot. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I was what, 11, 10, 11, 12. I can't remember how old I was when I did that stupid thing. But um, I mean, that really wonderful show. WTAJ. Right, sure, Way sure. to go, T.A.J. Um, and uh, 
and I remember I had to, like, I just had to ride in a circle. I remember like I had to, my foot down the whole time, like on the, on the ground, on the parking lot, you know, going yeah. around, I must've looked like an idiot, you know? <laughs> so it, I was very happy to not watch myself on television when I was on television. You probably look like a clown in a circus when they just like ride around the ring. Totally. Yeah. That right. kid. Now, the topic today, folks, it's the story of Bump. Now, we've done this before with uh, with my wife, Pilar. We've done it with uh, my friend, Ted Lyde. I've done it once. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story of Bump through songs that Bump picked. And there'll be tangents and there'll be fun and hopefully fun. What if there's no fun? <laughs> what would happen hey, if there was no fun? Well, I think that's just called like the age that we are right now. We're in the age of no fun. The age of no fun. So, Bump, when we went to see Kiss on July 21st, 1979 at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, was that oh, also my. your first concert? It was not my it was my first concert just going off on my own, you yeah. know, without my parents. My parents had taken me to a couple of shows when I was a kid. And um, we went to see the Osmond Brothers a couple of times because, you know, yeah. like that was that was, you know, that was approved, you know, I had a, approval for the Osmond Brothers and they took me to see them a couple of times. I remember one time in Philadelphia, I think, and once in Pittsburgh. Wow. That, so, I mean, to go to Philly from where we live, that's a, that's a jaunt. Yeah. So, so they took me to that. Um, but it was the first night I've ever gone. And here's the, so here's the funny story uh, that, you know, I don't know that you remember this. I'll never, ever forget it. Okay. But I had been working earlier the day and, and we took a bus. Remember we took the blue and white yes. line, you know, bus, you know, this is what you did where we lived. You would go to into Altoona at uncle Joe's woodshed and you mm -hmm. would get on the blue and white bus. That was part of your ticket price. It probably cost like 40 bucks for the bus there and back in the ticket. Yeah. I think the ticket was 1250. I still have the stub. And uh, then, uh, and they would take you to the Pittsburgh civic arena. You would get out, they would wait. You would get back on the bus and they'd take you back to Altoona. But okay, go ahead. So earlier in the day, I was working at my uncle's framing hut, the picture framing place, right? It's literally like a block away from where we were at the, you know, the, the blue and white line where right. we met up with them. And so I was there and I was there having lunch. I went to Wendy's to, to lunch. I'll never forget that I went to Wendy's because I had to wind up going back. And I, um, I took out my retainers, you know, like, you know, to to eat lunch. I threw the fucking things away. Ah, the worst. And I went home and my father said to me, you're not going to any concert until you get those things back. I'm like, dad, I threw them away at Wendy's. Like they were on the tray. He's like, you're going to go in and you're going to find those things. So literally before I went to get on the bus, I had to go dumpster diving. Now, the, th the best news of the whole deal was I went in and the manager had just, you know, had been there all day. And he's like, so what time do you think you were here? And I told him when and he was, he knew how they put the trash bags Amazing. into the storage room. So he's like, it's probably at that time, it's probably going to be this bag or that bag. See what wow. you think. I opened the first bag and there it was. <laughs> the I mean, angels were singing with this foul, disgusting <laughs> thing. But you got to go. Then I got to go to kiss, man. It was like, it was, it was worth it. You know, I, I should have, I don't know if I ever told, I've met several of the guys from kiss and I don't, I don't know that I ever told them that, that story. I probably should have. That's how much I wanted to come see kiss. Let's uh, let's play a little kiss just for the, just for the heck of it. This is the big song when we saw them. Uh -huh. 
In defense of your dad, a retainer back then was probably thousands of dollars. I don't know. I don't know. It could have been. It could have been, uh, you know, fifty cents for, when when it came down to it. My dad was making a point, man. He was not gonna. He was not coming back on that point. He wasn't fucking around. No way. Uh, here's the set list when we saw Kiss, and then we're done. Then, well, there's one more Kiss thing, but here's the set list we saw. Bump King of the Nighttime World. Let me go, rock and roll. Move on from Paul's solo album, Calling Dr. Love, Firehouse, New York Groove, I Was Made for Loving You, Christine 16, 2000 Man, Love Gun, God of Thunder, Shout It Out Loud, Black Diamond, Detroit Rock City, Beth, and Rock and Roll All Night. That's a pretty great set list for Kiss. Yeah. Pretty great. They're probably playing the same set list right now. Probably. Um, so... I'm trying to think uh, how to weave this around. You brought up meeting members of KISS. So you moved out here to Los Angeles to make it in the music business. You wanted to be rock and roller. And at the time you moved out, even though in high school and stuff, I knew you as more of a guy that maybe was a singer songwriter, like like James Taylor and things like that. But when you came out here, you got into the, the Sunset Strip hair metal yeah. arena. Yeah. And your band was called Jungle Alley. The first one, yeah. The first one. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember you came home. You were home and you let me know you were home. And uh, you came over to my house and you came walking down the street and you had these ripped jeans and you had, uh, you your hair was super long. And I was like, how did his hair get that long? He hasn't been gone that long for his hair to be that long. And of course you told me you had extensions put in, but you totally looked the part. And I was just like, well, he's, he's already made it. I think because (laughs) he already looks the part. So what year was it that you moved out here? Uh, That was 87. 87. So I got there in, I got there in like September of 87. And And how long did you stay? um, I was there for seven years. I think I came back in 94. And I moved out here in 95. So we just missed each other. Right. But while you were out here, you would, uh, you got to sing some, uh, you were hired by Paul Stanley to sing some of his songs for demos. Is that what it was? Yeah. So, I mean, like the first encounter we had with Kiss was actually through Gene Simmons because he started his own record label. He had Simmons Records. Yeah. And, and so we were being considered, you know, to be signed by, by, you know, Gene for uh for simmons records and so we we met through that we had picked up management through um bc rich guitars and we were endorsed by bc rich guitars and then the one the the one co-owner of bc rich ted bomb um uh 
decided to manage us. He just liked us. And so he took us under his way. And then a whole lot of things happened for us. You know, then we started recording all the time. We did a lot of recording. Um, so, but we met Gene then. And then years later. No, wait um, a minute. Wait a I got to back up. What is Gene like when you meet him musician to musician? Um, I, I, I don't. I don't know. I didn't have that experience of okay. Gene. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I met the I met the public persona of Gene Simmons. Okay. You know, who was, you know, very much the public persona that you imagine of Gene Simmons, you know, sort of chatting people up and, you know, and saying probably off-color things. That was the Gene Simmons okay. that I met. All right. The kind the kind of like he says things like you'd be with him and you're talking, and it's like, oh, that's really cool. Um, you know, and you know. I remember that like Gene gave me one of my favorite, you know, um, sort of compliments ever. He said, you know, your voice reminds me of, of early free. And I'm like, wow, man, I just compared me to Paul Rogers. Like I'm like, boom, yeah. you know? Um, so I was really stoked. Uh, I don't think it was true, but you know, I mean, I'll take it. Um, but then you'd be hanging out and like other people come up, Hey Gene, Hey Gene. And then, you know, he would say the kinds of things that make you go like, Ooh, <laughs> I think I want to step back. I'm going to take two <laughs> steps back now. Um, but that was just his public persona. That's, you know, that, that was my experience of him anyway. All right. So tell us about Paul because you, you sang some demos for Paul. Yeah, actually. Right? So, so I've been working, I've been doing some stuff with actually Tommy Thayer um, and who's now in kiss. It wasn't at the time, but um, he had a kiss, a like band. He had one of those, you know, a tribute bands yeah. and uh, called cold gin. Uh, and, you know, and they were sort of, they were like the official, you know, tribute band because Paul and, and Gene backed them. And, you yeah. Know, I and, saw Cool Gin when I lived in Chicago and they were phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were great. Yeah. I used to like to go to their shows, you know, I mean, they were, they were really good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, it was that sort of, that gave you that early kiss vibe, you know, like you can imagine you just, you, you could imagine what it was like to be in a club and just have these guys come and do that thing and go, damn. Yeah. Amazing. It's one of the best club experiences I've ever had. Like that's right. a fucking show. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's really good. So, so I knew Tommy and Tommy knew this, you know, worked with this other um, guy, Pat Regan, who was a producer and um, I'd done some stuff with Pat as well. And so um, Paul had a song that he was, that was too high for him to sing. Um, but it was rough and it was like, it was really like Paul's, uh, hard luck woman. You know, it was like, a, it was, you know, it was right along that kind of that real, you know, gravelly kind of voice. He wanted, he wanted it to sound that way. Cool. And so, um, so I got a call and went over and, and got to do that tune. And it was, I'll, I'll never forget being in the room. I'd been in the room a million times over at Pat Regan's studio, you know, but like looking through the window and like, you know, I remember at one point they said, um, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's just that that's fucking Paul Stanley, you know, on the other side of the glass. I'm good. Hold on. Just give me a second. It was just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, at some point when you're out there, you know, this, you, you meet so many people that at some point, like you don't even get starstruck at all anymore, but yeah. then it kind of surprises you that sometimes in the middle of a place where you no longer get starstruck, you encounter somebody who makes you go, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, that's fucking Bruce Springsteen. Oh my God. That's, 
Paul Stanley. Yeah. You know, and like that's you never somebody. know who that's going to be until it happens. Yeah. Marley Matlin was one of those people. I was like, like, I was like, oh my God, you know, yeah. like you, you never know who that's going to be, but sometimes people just catch you by surprise and you find yourself sort of, you know, having an out of body, out of body experience around yeah. a person. And that it, Paul was one of those kind of people. Yeah. I mean, not to make it about me, but I hung out with Robin Williams in a, in a green room in San Francisco and I, but I wasn't starstruck at all, but I was thinking uh, that's Robin Williams. Because he was the chillest, nicest, normal guy ever. Wow. But then I. Uh, That's huge. I, it, it, yeah, it is huge. Uh, and then uh, I was at the House of Blues seeing a Toto show. And uh, someone came back from the restroom and they said, Eddie Van Halen's over there. And I go, are you kidding me? I'm going to go say hi to Eddie Van Halen. So I go over there and Eddie comes. He was outside smoking on the balcony. He comes in and I was like frozen in my tracks. I couldn't say anything because yeah. he was one of those people. I'm like, well, I didn't know this was going to happen, Yeah, but I can't even speak. Yeah. So yeah. Chris Whitley was one of those guys for me. I was a big fan of Chris Whitley. And I, I went over to Rosebud, a place that I used to play in Pittsburgh and he was playing there. And I just happened to catch his, you know, like I was in Hollidaysburg and I'm like, I'm going to go to, out to Pittsburgh. I'm going to see this fucking show. And it was just him playing alone. But so beforehand, I just went into the restroom. I'm in the restroom and I look over and it's like Chris Whitley standing right next to me. I'm like, and I like, I was completely flabbergasted. I didn't even know what to say. I was just like, like I couldn't even form words. Yeah. You know, he was just, you know, he's just that kind of a big hero to me. Now, Chris Whitley is on your list. He's song number nine. But since you brought him up, we should jump into it. Yeah. So. Why is Chris Whitley on your list? Because he's a, an influence? Yeah, big influence. Um, Chris actually, you know, so I never got to meet Chris. We crossed paths out in Los Angeles. He got signed to Sony um, on, you know, for his first couple of records. And uh, I had friends there and and I was trying to get a deal, but they signed him. So he was there solo signing. And, and it wasn't until I got back to State College after I left Los Angeles a friend of mine said in state college, they're like, do you listen to Whit- Chris Whitley? Cause you should, you remind me of Chris Whitley. And I said, I, you know, no, I don't have any. So they gave me some Chris Whitley and uh, thank you, Sylvia. And, um, and I instantly fell in love with Chris Whitley. And then it was just a love affair from there, there and on out, you know, with Chris's uh, work, he does a lot of stuff in strange tunings, um, that he, you know, are his own tunings. And luckily I found those tunings online in a couple, you know, about five or six years ago. And I taught myself a bunch of his songs. Um, and it's, it's really fun to play his stuff, especially now that he's gone. He was, he was one of those guys that had like a, a vexed life, you know, it was like, he just, you know, he smoked like crazy and he died of cancer. And, you know, there's a documentary that they made about him that I've been too scared to buy because I've seen some snippets of it. And, uh-huh. you know, the end of his life didn't look like it was, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see your heroes um, live lives that aren't heroic. Um, That's a good way. You know, to another one of my big, another one of my big influences, f- favorite bands, you know, in the world ever, you know, is King's X. And I went to see them play a few years ago over in Battle Creek 
Michigan. And, you know, it's like I was watching them do this show and I was looking around like they don't have very many people running the show for them. You know, like they're they're doing a lot of their own, their own work, you know, yeah. to, to do shows. And I'm just like, you know, and, you know, like they're getting older, you know, Doug's, the, the bass player singer is pretty old now. And, you know, he's in his seventies. And, um, and, you know, as I just looking, I'm like, I wish the hell my, my heroes didn't have to work so hard. You know, you would and, hope that they would be in a place where they're a little bit more well off than they, than they are. Yeah. It's just, I mean, obviously they, they still love doing what they're doing and, right. you know, and, and for all I know, they're living their, their wildest dream, you know, yeah. but at some point you just look at him like, Oh my God, I can't imagine, you know, tearing down and setting up and moving to another city and then doing the same thing, you know, like really doing like right. it's young man's work. You yeah. know, you want I mean, to be able to just show up like Mick Jagger does do a sound check and do the show and get all the love and all the money. Yeah. That's what, yeah. You want. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of Dirt Floor from Chris Whitley. Yeah. Well, the mission be your blanket While the martial is your head As the future is so forgotten Right. I played that from the iTunes music store. They usually let me play 90 seconds. They would only allow me 30 seconds of that song. So hmm. now that's not the style of music that you play though. So Some, somewhat, you know I mean? Like when I did my singer songwriter stuff, I was doing a lot of, you know, sort of that kind of, but you don't have that twangy in your voice unless you would put it on. No, no, we have different voices, but yes. There's the thing that's, I think that there's a thing that's similar about us and that, um, so in the Paul Rogers thing too. So he's got a real, like, he's got a real bluesy thing going on in his voice that, yeah. you know, it, he's got other stuff going too, but there's this thing that's like a real, you know, hardcore kind of bluesy thing that he does. Um, he does a lot of falsetto stuff. I sh I'm the world's worst at falsetto. <laughs> I've got the world's worst falsetto. Let's talk about your mom and dad when you were in high school. Your mom and dad were supportive of the arts and they were supportive of you pursuing a dream in music if that's what you wanted to do. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of rare for parents of that generation. At least I didn't have that. Yeah. I think my dad, you know, like my mom... You know, my mom was whatever I wanted to do was fine with her. Your mom was a cool mom. Yeah, she was, you know, and still the cook, st still a cool mom. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, she was, you know, she was just there to, you know, whatever I wanted to do to try to make that happen for me. And my dad, um, my dad was really a busy guy too. I mean, he was really busy. And so, um, he wasn't around for an awful lot of it. You know, I mean, he was off taking care of shit. And yeah. um, so, but his support was, you know, like when I wound up moving to Los Angeles, it was after I graduated from college. Right. And I told him I wanted to do this. And he said, well, I support you, but I don't support you. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, he said, if this is what you really want to do, 
then you're going to need to prove it to yourself that you're going to put it all on the line for that. And he said, you know, I'm always going to be here on the other end of the phone if you need, if you find yourself in an emergency. But on the day-to-day, man, that's you. That's You're going to have to now go pursue your dream and it's yours. So you're going to have to figure it out. And so he said, in that way, I support you to go do that, but I don't support you through it. And, you know, that was my dad's, that was my dad's notion of support always. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a, you know, when I was a a teenager, you know, they helped me get some of my equipment, you know, like they helped me, you know, get some of the stuff that was beyond my ability to pay for some things. Of course. Um, so they were supportive in that kind of way. Um, and they were always like, my parents would show up. (laughs) There was a place in Altoona, um, called Altoona, Pennsylvania, our neighboring town, our neighboring town. town you know, uh, it called the Contiki and it was right by the fucking bus stop. I mean, Contiki was, lounge was it Contiki lounge. I yes. mean, this place was, this place was something. Yeah. And you know, the band that I had at that time when I was a, like a senior in high school, first year of college, um, was, uh, we played at this Contiki, you know, pretty regularly through a summer. And my fucking parents and sometimes even my grandparents would come and see us at you know, a special little table. That's kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Now, I remember the first time I was ever over at your house and it was just a whole different vibe. It wasn't, it was just a whole different vibe from my house. Like it was more laid back. It was more, I don't know, chill. And I don't want to, I don't want to say like, it wasn't a hippie vibe, but it was like more of a, I don't know. And, and, and your mom was just just special that way. I was just like, well, this is why isn't it like this everywhere? It's not like this at any of my other friends' house. Yeah, it was all about comfort and interface. I mean, you know, like, come on in. What do you want to do? Just where, wherever you guys want to be, whatever. You know, like yeah. there, were, there were there were no off limits territories in the house. You know, no. it was like like the house was the house. Like it was everybody could go everywhere. Yeah, um, and um, you know, I think that. You know, I, I was really happy to have that kind of a household. It's the kind of household we have now. You know, it's the same kind of deal. I remember there's things I remember like about your house is there was like a little door in the wall and there was a telephone in, I guess, like the living room is what, or den area. Yeah. But if you wanted the telephone in your room, this little door opened and you could bring the whole, again, kids, no cell phones. You could bring the whole unit through that door into your bedroom. Back when telephones were rooted, you know, yeah. I mean, they were fixed in places. Landline. It was a, it was a workaround. Yeah. yeah. The landline, you know, so you could just pass the whole fucking throw phone through, through the wall with the cord and everything. The, yeah. the little doors even had like a little, little chunk, like taken out of the doors. So the cord could slide through. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I remember yeah. you had, if, of course, you had a Gene Simmons ripper bass. Yes. Yeah, I had the Gibson Ripper bass. That yeah. was my first electric guitar. And in fact, I sold that bass to the bass player in Cold Gin. Is that when you were out here and you needed money in LA? I didn't well, it wasn't that I needed money. I was working. I had, you know, I was doing okay. Yeah. Um, but I had this Gibson Ripper bass and like I like I had out like I didn't love it anymore. You know, I mean, it was yeah. like I just had this bass and I was like, hey, I, you know. I was talking to Tommy. I'm like, Hey, if you're, I've got a ripper and, you know, and, and if your bass player, you know, is looking for one, 
He's like, yeah, Gene was, you know, he played more grabbers than rippers, but you know, and the guy came over and when he came to see the thing, you know, and I mean, it had, I mean, I had used the thing pretty hard. Yeah. It, it had battle scars on it, but he's like, yeah, no, Gene played a ripper on blah, blah. I mean, this guy was like, he knew, he knew everything. Right. So there was no bullshit in this guy, but yeah, I sold it to him. Otherwise I'd still have it because I still have most of my like, like earliest guitars. Yeah. Um, let's go back into your song list. Your right. first song on your list is Eminence Front by The Who. Tell yeah. me why you chose that. I have no idea. I mean, honestly, maybe because it's like, the, you know, I mean, of course, there's Bob O'Reilly. Of course, this won't get fooled again. Of course, there's, you know, Behind Blue Eyes. There's, you know, there's, there's so many, you know, great Who songs, you know, I'm the one, it's, you know, but... But Eminence Front, there's something about it that I just always loved. And I think that it's because it's one, it's one of the songs, one of the few songs where Townsend just takes it. And like, I think his guitar playing on it is magnificent. He's one of my favorite guitar players. I think he's one of the most underrated guitar players ever. Um, because he's, I think people think of him mostly as a songwriter. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but I mean, his guitar playing is fantastic on this. And he's the only guitar player on the stage with when well, the group plays. Well, yeah, I think, but in the Eminence Front, if you remember the video, yep. Roger plays. The video was, yeah, Roger plays the ba 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 ba. Right. So he plays that just to keep it rolling because there's, there's it's such a simple song. I mean, yeah. like the song doesn't really go many places. No. Um, it's just straight ahead. And I think the Townsend sings it well. And I just love it. Let's hear a little bit of it. I love it too. What a groove. It's it, it's terrific. And the reason that I got into The Who is because of Bump Hall Britter. And here's why. I didn't own any Who albums. I mean, I knew Who songs from the radio. But at one of our high school assemblies, you and a bunch of guys played You Better You Bet. Mm. Yeah. And that's the first time I had ever heard that song was when you guys played it. And I was like, huh. what's this song? And then you must have told me that's a new Who song. So I bought face dances and then I've been a diehard ever since I bought everything after that. Who was playing that day? Cause I remember different people than you remember who was playing. I remember that that band was Bill McTagg on drums. Okay. It was Chris Robinson who actually, I think is Robinson and not Robinson. I think it was okay. Robinson, Chris and Chris was the, he sang that song. Okay. Um, and, um, and uh, um, C.R. Melberg on bass. on bass. Yeah. Who still plays bass and is a working yeah. musician. As far as I know, yeah. That's the as far last as we know, yeah. In yeah. Nashville. Yeah. A session guy, I would assume, or plays in bands still. Yeah. Um, 
I don't remember how we met. I really don't. We didn't have classes together. I think that it was one of those things. I remember when you when you did come, you know, to when you made the transition. It was ninth grade was when ninth you guys grade, came yeah. over, right? That's when yeah. you came out of Catholic school. And um, you know, it was just one of those things where like, you know, people go like, you know, who are the new folks? Who are the, you know, and it's like, you know, people were like, oh, you're gonna have to meet Pat. Like, you know, he's funny. What? And you know, and uh and so, you know, I think that I, I can't remember. I, maybe it was through Melberg. It could have been through through CR. Could I? That but, sounds about right. That sounds probably because I had uh, I was in German with CR. Yeah. And we hit it off immediately. Yeah. So I think it was maybe through him, um, but yeah, I, I I honestly I don't know. But then we I mean, like then we knew all the same people like you know Bridget yeah. and Lori Dangle and yeah. you know and you know that group of folks. Yeah. Who I grew up with in school um through the girls yeah i mean but like laurie and bridget and i were always in classes together like we we you know from the time we were in fourth grade we were all in that we were always in the same classes and so there was this one little this sort of group of folks you know and um and so that's i i i just don't i think it must have been through that group and then Laurie Dangle moved two blocks up the street from me. And then right. her and I are best buddies to this day. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm glad you remember. Um, so, Bump, I asked you why you picked Eminence Front and, and how it related to your life. And your answer was, uh, I don't know. So, <laughs> did, I hope some of these other songs are going to tell more about the story of Bump. I don't know if they, I don't know what they reveal about me other than the, the fact that, like, I guess just, as a person who loves music, mm-hmm. like certain things just sort of get into my life and become part of that soundtrack. And Eminence Front is totally that. So, I mean, it's like that groove, that guitar playing, that just, just something about that. That song is just, you know, like, and, and I don't find that, I'm not always listening to those records. Like I'm, it's not always on a record. So I always have to seek out the song. Okay. You know, so that, that's why it stands out as one of those really important songs to me from a really important artist in my life. It's a really important song. All right. Let's go way back to 1968. You picked a song from the White Album, The Beatles, Martha, My Dear. Let me play it and then we'll talk about it. All right. Martha, my dear. True. Tell me about it. Uh, I mean, like what a melody, right? You know, I think the thing that it's one of those songs where, I mean, it could have been She's Leaving Home. I mean, like I'm always on, you know, I'm a McCartney guy mostly. And I just, the melody that it just kills me on this. And the production, I think that one of the, I'm really into partnerships too. And I think that McCartney and um, 
and George Martin seemed to have this magical kismet of of a relationship, a working relationship with each other. I mean, because like, listen to what George Martin did to that song, right? And but you know, like you look at the Beatles and here's the Beatles, like one of the great rock bands, but the, like, what was rock and roll about that song? There's like hardly anything rock and roll about right. that song, yeah. but the melody itself is like, it transcends that. And so, you know, you were saying earlier, like, I don't know that that was really your type of music or you went, you, I knew you was a singer songwriter. And then and next thing I know you're in Los Angeles and you're in a hair metal band. Yeah. And to me, I never really cared terribly much about genre. Um, I'm just more interested in, I don't know, melody, groove, feel, whatever, right? The je ne sais quoi of, you know, of music. And um, and I think that this is one of those perfect songs for that. You know, I mean, Martha, my dear, is this, this one song that I think is such a quintessential Beatles song yeah. that, that sort of isn't usually in the normal list of big Beatles songs. It definitely is not. I mean, normally, literally almost every Beatles song that, comes on i know it mm-hmm. and, but this is not one that i'm even i mean i own all the stuff but i'm not yeah. even this isn't a song i'm real familiar with but yeah so good as as a songwriter you know it's like it just especially when i was song doing a lot of songwriting mm-hmm. i always just looked at this as one of the songs i was just like what a fucking song man like whew, what a melody Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Let me, uh, let's give a rundown of some of the bands when you were out here trying to make it, who are some of the bands that you, you know, were playing in the clubs with, and then they, they got the deal. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know how to say it without sounding bad, like, but they, they got, you guys didn't get the deal. They got the deal. And then another band would get the deal and you guys would almost get the deal. Is that just, yeah. that's just how it is in, in everything entertainment. Yeah. So, you know, it- so I got to Los Angeles at what turned out to be the end of the heyday, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, you know, you had like Van Halen and Rat and, you know, and all those. And so Poison, I got there just after Poison left. And so who was going to fill the Poison void? Right. And that was Warrant in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so my first gig was opening third slot. So the way it worked in, in Los Angeles is in certain, some of the clubs, the headliners went last in some of the clubs, the headliners went were the penultimate, you know, group. So there's a closing act. Okay. Um, but my first one was the third slot right in front of warrant. Like that was my first gig in Los Angeles. And, you know, so, so we, and warrant was, Warrant was enormous in Los Angeles. I mean, they owned LA um, for years until they got their deal and and went out. And so, and then even afterwards, so we were very, you know, we were close with those guys. Um, so they were the big one at the time. Um, you know, some of the other folks. Um, but after Warrant, I mean, like Los Angeles kind of then dried up. 
because it wasn't long after that, you know, Guns N' Roses right before as well, right? But they, again, they weren't on, they had, I had their record, you know, before I got to LA. Like it like, happened at the same time. Like their record came out as I was in LA, you know, like as I was getting there. And so they weren't really around on the strip when I got there. It was in the immediate wake of that. And then more, it was after them. Um, but then after that, it's like, you know, then, you know, like the whole Seattle thing happened, you know, a couple of years later and that killed everything in Los Angeles. So, um, Los Angeles became really a bad music town for a while. Um, so in hard. your final, in your final years here, did you try to pivot not into grunge, but into something different or did you still stay the course with, uh, what you had been doing musically? No, because so like I was with that first band for like three years mm -hmm. and, um, and you know, and, um, one of the other bands that the, one of the bands that did jump over us mm -hmm. was a band that was called bite the bullet at the time, but they went off and had a record deal under the name of South gang. And, um, and the, you know, that might not ring a bell for anybody, but Butch Walker was the guitar player in that band. Ah, yes. And so, so, um, and I'm still in touch with Butch. And so it was like, those are the folks that I hung around with. Like it was Tommy Thayer, um, who had been in black and blue yes. and, and, and then was in, I can't remember what else he was in, but then it was like, so Tommy, Pat Regan, Eric Turner, the, one of the guitar players from Warrant yep. and Butch. And like those four guys, I, we would write songs together. They would write songs. I would sing on a lot of their songs, you know, to demo those things. And then they were going to pick me up and work with me as a, as a solo artist. And then I wound up getting involved in these, in this other thing. The first thing was with a, a guy through Pat Regan as well. The, the producer guy um, who was working with um, a guy that was the former guitar player in Megadeth. And, um, and his project was kind of interesting and I, I liked it. I sang on it. I think I, I, you know, I still have those song, those couple of songs. I think there are four songs that I sang on that are up on my SoundCloud page. Uh, thing called, he was named Jeff Young and it was the band was flesh and bone. And at the very same time, then Neverland was looking for a new singer. And I started working with those guys. And I thought when I, when I joined Neverland, I thought, Oh my God, I made it because you know, they were under Jimmy Iovine at, at Interscope. I knew that they had just, you know, like Iovine had shopped them everywhere. They got a huge deal through Interscope. It was great. But the, the, the bottom had completely come out um, by the time I was in, in the thing, you know, like it was, I, I remember, you know, saying at the time, Oh my God, I just joined a band that has like enormous industry behind it. And then gone. And then was that the final, the final straw? Is that when you were like, time yeah. to move? Yeah. I mean, we were still, I mean, but we were good. I mean, I, I mean, I really liked yeah. that band and I really liked Patrick's guitar playing and, you know, and Gary was a really good bass player and, and we were, you know, and we got other management and we were, you know, starting to do some stuff and we were gigging and um, Kevin uh, Valentine, um, who's played with, you know, Lou Reed or not, not Lou Reed. Lou Graham. Graham. Graham and yeah. you know and, and Donnie Iris. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's, he's also on a lot of Kiss albums, but uncredited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean he's phenomenal. Um, so Kevin was playing drums for us, and uh and, and it was a really good band. I really liked it. But 
I, I don't know. You know, like my girlfriend at the time wanted to leave Los Angeles and, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, and you yeah, moved out go. here. With, that was Lisa, right? Mm-hmm. Lisa, you moved out here with her and you guys mm-hmm. were, you yeah. know, solid throughout the whole Los Angeles run. Yeah. And then she wanted to leave. And so I said, okay, let's go. And uh, she wanted to go back to Penn state and finish up her degree, which she cut short. You know, she didn't finish. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was that, um, you know, and I, I, I kind of expected to be coming right back to LA, you know, I kind of expected to move back with her, let her finish up and then coming back. It just didn't work out that way. It just didn't turn out that way. It's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to come here and then get roots set in. And then I can't imagine leaving and then coming back like a friend of mine who was a screenwriter and had some movies produced and made a movie. His, uh, his wife, wanted to go back to Wisconsin. Yeah. And same thing. He thought they'll go back. Kids will get to a certain age and then they'll come back here. But right. It's tough. Well, it's, you know, it was a weird thing. I mean, like, so I had this actual solo thing that was going on, you know? So I had a manager when I left and that got that set up, brought me back out to LA and met with some producers and stuff. And we got things really set up. It was going to, going to do a thing with, um, Greg Ladani and Wadi Wachtel, actually, were going to produce um, a record for me. Amazing. And I know. And um, and so, but it, it, at the same time, I had moved back to state college with, with Lisa and suddenly was like working all the time as a musician in LA, or I mean, in, in state college. Yeah, and gigging like, all over. Gigging all over in town, but like literally like lines around the block like to come and see us play. So it was this really strange thing where like, you know, I came, I came back and like this thing that I was doing to kill time before I went back out to LA sort of turned into its own kind of life. And, you know, and, and so, you know, that's, I, I just, just did that. (laughs) And, and probably making good money doing that in state college. I mean, it was a living, you know, I made a living, and, but, you know, I, I can't like, I don't know how to go back and, and make great sense of it at this point. But, you know, it's like, I think that I was, I was, I had been in Los Angeles long enough to know that a really good, a really good opportunity, a really good thing mm-hmm. often doesn't, and what was the Richard Marks, you know, song? It don't mean nothing until you sign on the bottom. Yeah. I mean, like, even after you've signed on the line, it still don't mean fucking nothing. It doesn't mean nothing until you're selling the fucking records, until right. you're putting butts in seats. You know, I mean, like, like it's, you know, I had been close, so close for so long that I, you know, I didn't trust any of it anymore. Um, and it felt like in Los Angeles, I didn't control very much of my destiny at all. And I felt like in state college, at least I could control some of it. Like, yeah. like you know, I could go work. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you want to do. That's you what wanna, I did. You want to play. You want to play for people and have them enjoy it. Yep. All right. I don't know how this song is going to relate to anything. It's Aretha Franklin. <laughs> I never loved a man the way I love you. So I'm going to play it. And then you get your thoughts together. All right. I'm assuming you loved a man. <laughs> Cheat. 
I can't wait to hear how this song fits into the story of Bump. Oh man, the Queen of Soul! Come on, um, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't. I mean, I still listen to that. And I go, like, that's as good as fucking music gets, right there. Like, that is, that is, that is, that's it. You know, like if, like, if somebody came here from another planet and said, "What is music?" You'd go here. <laughs> listen to Never Loved a Man you know it's like like she fucking wrote the book um at the time that i found aretha um and bonnie Raitt, actually um really at the same time it, i was spending a lot of time with becca bramlett um who's the daughter of delaney and bonnie and um she was in fleetwood mac for a time she was there for a while and she's toured with fucking everyone you know yeah. um uh, and really, you know, like sometimes we were talking about being starstruck. Um, Becca wasn't a big star, but Becca was the kind of person that when you're in the room with her, um, it, like she becomes the center of gravity. You know, it's like, like it's a starstruck kind of thing where you're just like, like the energy is just crazy um, because the, her talent is, is enormous. You know, you're just in a room with somebody who has talent that you just go, oh my God. Like she just was just, just stinking with talent. I mean, like, it, like, you know, it, the party was six hours into the party and all of the things were being consumed and everything. And something came on and somebody says, sing. And Becca just sings and everybody in the room, it's just like, it changes the world, you know, like it's, Suddenly then, it's, it's just all fresh air. You know, it's amazing. And, e and easy on the eyes too. Yeah. So Becca was that, you know, was that kind of person for me. And, you know, and, and one of those people that I got to spend time with, that was just crazy talented where I just went, Oh my God, how do I get to spend time with her? And how do, you know, how do I get to sing with her? We did a lot of singing together. And, um, and so, you know, so listening to her, then I went and I was like, I got to go study. And so I, that's when I went and found Aretha and I found Bonnie and, um, and that really became sort of the center of my sort of musical education that where it went at that point, you know, I just, and did a, Becca did a, Bramlett is a perfect example of someone who's extremely talented, but not a household name uh, same household. with Beth Hart. Yeah. Amazing, but not yeah. a household name. Nope. And it's uh and you just don't know how how this works out. How you know what I mean? Yeah. The most talented people are not always the famous people that we know. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's I mean, without question. Yeah. You know, like that's the other I think that's another part of it where, you know, like you go, like, how can you leave Los Angeles? It's the you see enough folks who you go like you know, I'm pretty good. I, you know, I did all right. But then you look at people and you go like, but, you know, like look at these people who are my heroes and how fucking good they are and look at their struggle, you know, and, yeah. you know, look at their, you know, I mean, you know, it's not just struggle. I mean, like, and amazing success. Um, you know, Becca's had amazing success, Yeah, but not a household name. 
And in some ways, you know, in my, at this age, I look at it and go, I think that's actually winning the fucking lottery right there. You know, like, like literally being able to go to, to Ralph's, you know, and, you know, and not, you know, not be mobbed, yeah. you know, and, and, and be able to work with the people who she's been able to work with. I mean, my God, she's sung, you know, she's sung with everyone, Joe Cocker, she yeah. did, you know, a duet with Joe Cocker. I mean, honestly, you know, like uh, all of her heroes. Bill Murray has a great quote where he says, everybody wants to be rich and famous. I tell those people, uh, why don't you get rich first and see if that doesn't cover it for you? <laughs> uh, you brought up Completely. Bonnie Raitt. You brought up Bonnie Raitt, and I'm so happy that you picked songs off of her first nine albums for Warner Brothers because these things get lost in the shuffle because of, you know, the 89 through 96 mega star Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. But these Warner Brothers albums are incredible. Yeah. I mean, and she was young and she had so she young. had the old she had the old soul at 19, you know? I mean, like I she was Bonnie Raitt at in a, as a teenager. You know, it's like you go back and it's not like, oh, listen to little Bonnie. She was fucking Bonnie Raitt as a teenager. She was amazing. Yep. You know, and and look at the company she's kept. You know, like she kept the company of of the greats, Prime. The greats. You know, I mean, it's like you know, it's, she's, um, I mean, what a, she's a, you know, she talk about a national treasure. I mean, yeah, a like, force of nature. She's last too. I mean, like the, the folks that we're looking at, you know, all along, it's, you know, we got the who you got the Beatles, you, you got Aretha Franklin, you got Bonnie Raitt. I mean, like, like, wow. You know, Bonnie's just amazing. Well, know, I think I, yeah, go ahead. We, I, we got angel from Montgomery, which is a John Pines, Excuse me, John Prine song. Let's yeah. hear that. I love her version. Oh my. I am an old woman named after my mother. My old man is another child that's grown old. If dreams were thunder. Lightning was desire. This old house would have burnt down at long. That came out in 1974. It's going to be 15 years until 1989 when Nick of Time blows Bonnie Raitt up to, uh, as I said before, uh, being a household name. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, sometimes you stay the course mm -hmm. and and things happen. And then. But she's Bonnie Raitt. I mean. Yeah, but I mean, she, yeah. I mean, she's honestly. Bonnie honest Raitt. To God. Oh. You know, I mean, you know, and. You know, the, it was the, actually the record after Nick of Time um, where she did uh, I Can't Make You Love Me If You Don't. Yeah. And that's a song that was co-written by um, a guy from Altoona. Um, yeah, Mike Reed. Mike Reed. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's one of the great songs, you know, but like 
but so is Angel from Montgomery, you know what I mean? Like, and so is Guilty, you know what I mean? Like, like she had a nose for great songs. Um, if you can have a nose, is that a mixed metaphor? A nose for great songs, ear for great, ah, whatever. An ear for She's, great food? Whatever, yeah, that's it. She had an ear for great food. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, you know, Angel from Montgomery, I mean, the lyric in that song is just, it's so crazy good. I mean, Prine, there's a reason why, you know, like Chris Christopherson and all those guys that were like the big songwriters at the time went and saw this fucking mailman, you know, playing in Chicago. And holy fuck, <laughs> move over. That you know? first line, she had, in her early 20s, she sells that line, I am an old woman. Yeah. All right, let's hear Guilty. It's a Randy Newman song. Yeah. And it's great. It's great. Yes, baby, I've been drinking I shouldn't come by no more But I found myself in trouble, dark And I had no place else to go I got some whiskey from a barman. Got some cocaine from a friend. And I had to keep on moving till I was back in your. First time I heard that song was when John Belushi sang it on a Blues Brothers album. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, so, Bump, do any songs on your list today, do they relate to meeting your wife or having your kids? Hmm. Um, well, you know, I mean, Benny and the Jets, you know, my daughter Bennett is, is named for Benny and the Jets. So, um, so there's that. Um, Wait, well, let's let's play it. I'm gonna play it. All right. youngest is also named after a song uh the gin blossoms mrs rita uh-huh and then if my wife is a big fan of rita moreno so right that helped too um now bennett has inherited the talent uh mm. from the dad i mean i don't know does your wife sing 
She does not. All right. So you can claim that talent then. And, you know, yeah. So, you know, my wife, Julie, will, will often say that, you know, like, you know, she sort of observes the music happening in the rest of the family. She doesn't know how she got, she, you know, was able to, you know, luck into this, you know, this family of music, but um, uh, she's very happy to, to, you know, be around all the music. And you've posted videos on Instagram of you and Bennett singing. I think the one that I really liked was you guys did landslide. Yeah. She has such an incredible voice and such an incredible take on a song that I've heard a million times. Right. But then I heard her sing it. And it was yeah. all brand new again. Yeah. Pretty yeah, cool. She's, she's got the, she's got the, she's got it. You know, she's got the thing, um, you know, we'll see what she wants to do with it. It's one of those, just one of those deals. Does she do anything with it now? Is she in musical theater in high school? Um, she's done some, I think that probably for her senior year that's coming up, she's probably going to do the musical, um, you know, that, you know, for in her senior year. So that'll be a thing. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, mostly she's just, you know, I mean, the last couple of years on under lockdown, she's just been sort of, you know, teaching herself a lot of, you know, she's just decides to play guitar and boom, now she plays guitar. And she of course, that's what kids do. Ukulele. Boom. She plays ukulele and she plays piano and she, you know, she sings songs and she learns songs and there she goes. It's funny. A year ago, my sister was here for my, it was like the, my sister died in September and in June, she came out here for my son's, uh, my son Sawyer, his um, graduation from high school. And she and my dad came out and it was like the last, it was the last hurrah for Greta before my sister, before she became very ill. And, um, and so you know, we were sitting around and one of the things that I used to do a lot, a lot with Greta is just sing songs and play music and play, you know, and just fucking laugh. I mean, we just laugh our asses off and, you know, make music. And, um, and Bennett <clears throat> brought out her, her ukulele and she was the musical accompaniment. I didn't play guitar at all. I didn't do anything. I just sat back and Bennett like surprised me because she would like get out her phone and she'd say, what song do we want to play? And she would find this, the tab, you know, on, on line. She'd figure out the key, boom. And she would just start playing it, you know, like all of these songs, we were just rifling through them and laughing our asses off and just having the greatest time. So, you know, like I think my very favorite musical moments in my life have involved my sister and my, my daughter. Um, the, there's, there've been a couple of moments where the three of us have done some things together that have, um, made me, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, like it changes, you think, you know, your life in music and then suddenly you have an experience with this thing. That's like this DNA connection um that that i don't know it, th those moments have totally rearranged the furniture of my life <laughs> i don't know how and else to say it well the blending of the voices and they what do they call it the blood harmony yeah and uh yeah so that's you know we should note that the bump didn't get all the talent in his immediate family um yeah. greta did many things yeah yeah she i'm gonna play i actually have a song that i have queued up uh because the first time I ever heard Cheryl Crow yeah. was your sister gave me the cassette for Tuesday Night Music Club. Yeah. And she said, have you heard this person? And I was like, no. 
And uh, I was not always uh, willing to accept <laughs> new music and listen to it. Even today, like people go, you got to listen to this. And I'll be like, yeah. yeah. And then like five years later, I'll listen to it and then claim that I discovered it on my own. But right. Tuesday Night Music Club definitely uh, is because of Greta. So here's a little All I Want to Do. Back to the phone company, the record store when you hear when you live in los angeles and you hear references to things that you know about now like yeah. i know santa monica boulevard i know uh i know it's a long day living in reseda uh you know i you know all these references and petty songs and all these california bands it's just kind of uh it's kind of cool it's like when i see a movie that you're like oh this was filmed in la oh my god that's yeah. the restaurant where we ate last week it's just yeah but um, I don't know how much you want to talk about uh, Greta because it's still fresh. I'll talk about Greta all day long. I love her. You know, I mean, like right. she was, you know, I, you know, like, you know, uh, Greta was a complicated person. She was, you know, one of those people that, you know, I, it, I'm at that point now where I go, like, I think that the great lesson that I learned through my sister was one about, um, um, uh, unconditional love. You know, I mean, like because like Greta and I loved each other. I mean, we just loved each other. Yeah. Very and a close. Lot of time, a lot of times we couldn't stand each other. Um, <laughs> but you know, like we loved each other so much. It really was this unconditional thing where like any other person in your life that, you know, like cross your lines and you go like, well, fuck you. I'm out. Um, you know, like that's a, that's a line too far. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the last one. You know, I mean, I reached my last straw with my sister, you know, probably before I was left my teen years and, and we were seven and a half years. She was seven and a half years younger. Yeah. Um, but, um, but we just had, um, you know, I mean, like we were, we were family. I mean, you know, we were just, it was, I was just blessed to have this person and what I've come to learn, I didn't know this until she was gone. I, how important she was to my kids. Yeah. My kids had really imp, had very intense relationships with Greta that I didn't realize. I didn't know until she was gone. It was actually kind of recently when they were, you know, had, you know, told me about some of it. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. You mean how much they would communicate one-on-one -on -one yeah. or you yeah. Yeah. And phone calls that you're not privy to. And yeah, that's just how it is. You know? Yeah time that they spent with her and all of that stuff, you know I mean? Like, yeah, that she was really an important person in their lives. And I didn't really, cause we've always lived apart, you know, like yeah. we've lived away, you know, for the, the entirety of my kids' lives. Yeah. Um, and yet she had this really amazing presence in their life. Well, that's because she cared about those kids and she wanted to make the effort because it the easier thing would be to not have a relationship with your, your niece and nephew that live states yeah. away. That would be easy to do. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Um, I think it was, it wasn't the amount of time. It was just the quality of it. Like, the, like yeah. she was, you know, Greta was a really intense person <laughs> and, um, and you know, she really made an impression. And it was your younger sister. And when you're, you never expect someone younger than you to pass. Yeah, no, she was it's, supposed to outlive me. Yes. You know? Everyone that's younger than us is supposed to outlive us. We know yeah. that eventually our parents will pass while we're living. We don't expect that we're going to pass right. before them. So a very difficult thing. And if, if I can say she had a very rare form of cancer. Yeah. It was yeah. A, a appendix cancer. Yeah. That's what the yellow band is for in your the wrist. yellow band is for. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to detect it. What? I mean. Yeah. She, they, it, <clears throat> And again, only if you're comfortable bump, I don't want to push. Yeah, it's it's fine. I mean, okay. um, yeah, it was, you know, she, she it had it and didn't have, it was, you know, she fought it for about four or five years yeah. and, um, um, you know, didn't know what it was at first. And then they, you know, had a tumor that was on her appendix actually burst. And so that's when they found, they were like, well, it's, you know, there's actually more going on here than just a burst appendix. And, um, and so in some ways she was lucky to find out what she was dealing with because a lot of people just die from it. And they, you know, they, they, they die from an associated cancer yeah. uh, problem. Um, and they don't even know they have it until they get this other kind of thing that's going on. So in some ways she was, you know, fortunate. It's hard to look at anything that she went through and go, that was fortunate. Um, you know, the, um, uh, cancers are difficult and different and, you know, uh, they're all different ones. The, this one is, um, this one was sort of watching her del die cell by cell, um, in the final, you know, month and a half or so. Um, and it was just a, it was, you know, I mean, it was a miserable thing, but, you know, here we are talking about music and here we're talking about Greta and, um, at some point she was, you know, sent home, she could no longer eat. Um, and so she was sent home uh, essentially to die. And that took a lot longer than anybody anticipated. Um, and, um, but it was also very painful. And so she was on a lot of morphine yeah. and, at some point she was kind of lost the ability to talk. Um, she just couldn't be lucid, um, long enough. And, um, it was music that would served as our communication for weeks, yeah. um, in her final weeks that I would take a guitar always and sit by her with a guitar and play songs that she liked or songs that she recognized or songs that she knew. And you could see her come back from wherever she was, wherever she went, she would come back and she could follow, you know, the melody. You could almost see her follow literally like, like following a, you know, a line, you know, following the melody. Um, it's magic. Music is magic. There's no question about it. It's, and it was never more clear to me than in those weeks that I spent with her. Now your home dynamic is uh, you and your wife and your oldest is your son, Sawyer. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the same dynamic as your household when you were growing up. Right. Do you see any of you and Greta in Sawyer and Bennett? Oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, like, 
um, you know, and I'm sure the, the kids are going to listen to the podcast. Well, they're going to probably at some point pretend that they've listened to the podcast. They'll tell the old or, man or listen to it and pretend they didn't. Exactly. But um, you know, so they so kids, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, but it was they they watched me going back and forth for about six weeks, um, every weekend. You know, so I'd teach two days a week uh, here and then spend a day driving to Pennsylvania, spend two days there and then a drive day to drive back and then teach. So, um, and so it was, um, they were watching that and, and they both said like, you know, I think Bennett, Bennett's idea was when she was old enough to, when she graduated high school, she was going to go to like fucking Mars, man. She was going to get as far away as possible, you know, and Sawyer goes to Michigan state and, um, you know, he's here. And in doing that, they, I think they both looked at each other and went, maybe we should stay a little closer to each other. And, um, and I think that they, um, acknowledged something openly that they probably had suspected or had, you know, acknowledged not openly, but, you know, sort of harbored that how important they were to each other. And, um, and that has become all the more salient, I think in the, in the wake of my sister's uh, death is that, you know, I think that those two really have um, connected in a life lifelong way. That's great. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, that's the gift of the tragedy, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And how do we move on to talking about Radiohead? <laughs> how do we jump off? Uh, um, yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Radiohead is for, for, Aretha, for Aretha Franklin, for Bonnie Raitt, and for, um, you know, the um, Elton John for Benny and the Jets, like those are all songs that I covered. You know, like, yeah. so I didn't do a lot of cover songs, but when I would play my original sets, I would throw, you know, sprinkle in, you know, um, some covers. And these are the covers that I was, you know, doing Angel from Montgomery and Guilty and, you know, and um, uh, Benny and the Jets I used to do yeah. acoustically. And so, um, so that maybe, you know, like, but Radiohead was never one that I really covered. Um, Radiohead was uh, the band that I was listening to when I was playing all those shows, you know, I was like, that's, that was a band that really was. And Radiohead then really did become a really important, you would ask, is any of this music really important to like meeting your wife? Ah, man, we were listening to Radiohead. My God, did we listen to OK Computer and the Benz just, you know, and this became the music that really was important to us. And the National Anthem, Kid A, I think that record came out really right around the time when Sawyer was born. And, um, so like the national anthem on that record, it's not like that kid. A isn't one of my favorite, you know, Radiohead albums, but that song itself, I think has one of the sickest grooves ever. It's just such a fat groove. All right. Let me drop it in. Let's hear a little bit of it.
I'm bopping around with the music here, but I'm not going to even pretend that this is in any way my thing because yeah. it's, uh, I don't, I feel like this is a, a musician's band. I don't know why I feel like that. I just, I just can't, we did a Radiohead episode here. It's one of our most downloaded episodes, yeah. uh, obviously because people love Radiohead and Fucking not me, Radiohead. but um, I just, I just can't get into it. Yeah. Why I mean, am I a well, nerd? I, I don't, you know, I square. I, you know look man you know music is you know it's it's whatever it is that you like you know it's like it's all good it's all shit you know i mean it doesn't, it's, it's you know i mean it's just the way it works i it's really interesting though i've never really thought about this song this with the proximity to eminence front but they're very similar they're just relentless they just have this driving groove that just doesn't go away you know i mean it just never leaves you right same thing with this i mean it's just like it's relentless and it's just such a tough groove love it did you and uh did you and your wife you call her jules Mm-hmm. What would I call her, Mrs. Halbritter? <laughs> yeah, Jules or Julie, either. Yeah. Okay. Did you it's, guys have a word? Go ahead. It, it's, well, so my writing partner at work mm-hmm. is Julie Lindquist. So there's these two Julies, like okay. that are, and so um, it makes it a lot. Like it prevents confusion when I'm talking to people who are around me in my life now, yeah. if I'm talking about Julie or if I'm talking about Jules. So makes sense. Um, yeah. So there's that. Now to clear it up, Julie, is it Lundquist? Lindquist. Lindquist. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys aren't writing songs together. No. What are you writing? We, um, uh, a book right now um and we've we're editing another book that's going to turn into two more books and then um we've written a bunch of articles together um we've been writing partners now for you know 16 years this is and another we've thing done I movies about. we've done documentary stuff together and we've done cool. a lot of stuff yeah uh bop and i are the same in this way we've always had friends that were female friends it didn't matter mm-hmm. if we had girlfriends or even wives we still have friends that are female Mm-hmm. which is yeah. good yeah that's a good thing um here's where i remember another uh thought about in high school i remember being in your bedroom and we were jesse's girl came on and we pl- were playing the rick springfield working class dog album and you picked up your guitar and just you played jesse's girl like right off just you're like oh i think i can play that and you're like just listen to it and then you just played that opening riff, which right. maybe was easy for you, but still I remember that because I was just like, how did he do it? Because I love music, but I do not have musical ability. So again, that was like a magic trick to me. Like, I just couldn't believe that you could just hear something. And five minutes later, you knew how to play that little riff. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in our generation, you had to do it that way. You know what I mean? Like, I think the generation now is a lot different. Like, like I was just saying, my, my daughter goes upstairs. She's got her phone. She's like, what song do you want to play? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do a Madonna song. And so whatever the Madonna song was, you know, it's like, she comes up and be like, there it is. Like a prayer. Okay, great. Okay. I got it. And so, you know, like you look it up and boom, you know, like you got lyrics, you've got the, the chord structure, you got everything. Yeah. And you know, it's all there uh, for you. And for us, 
we had to listen. Um, you know, like we weren't out by, we weren't running out to buy, you know, the sheet music, um, you know, for, you know, eminence front, you know, we were, you know, we sit down with the record and fucking listen to it and go, now how the hell do you play that? And then go, what the hell does he say? And, you know, and, you know, it's so, you know, you just, you would spend hours listening. And so you develop, if that's your gig, you know, if that's what you're doing, you develop that, those kind of skills to, yeah. or you don't, you know, I mean, not like everybody does, but you know, if, if you're going to be able to do it, you have to be able to do that. That's the entry level. But you could do it when we were a teenager, and I just couldn't believe that anyone could do this. Mm. It was amazing to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the only way to do it. I mean, like, if you wanted to learn how to play a song, you know, that's what you did. You just listened and went, "Mm, I think I got that, you know. I love lyrics. So I, I remember when I would buy an album that didn't have the lyrics and I would just like be picking the needle up and dropping it over and over, trying to, with headphones, trying to understand what a certain line was or a certain yep. word. What's he saying? And uh, mm-hmm. but that was fun. I like doing that. Yeah. We got a, a run of McCartney songs here that you picked. Mm-hmm. We got My Love. We got Uncle Albert. We got Jet. We got Maybe I'm Amazed. All fantastic songs. They're so good. What do you want to hear? Think, and then what are we going to talk about? I think, you know, like Uncle Albert. Admiral Halsey, I was just listening to that again today. And, you know, and, you know, I think that that was one of those first records that I remember being on the radio. Yeah. You know, I remember like being, you know, like in a car as a child and having that come on the radio and just going, well, that's different. I remember it's like, it, it just created a different kind of space, um, you know, in, in the car. Um, and, and it still does to this day, you know, I think that this was in the sort of the heyday of McCartney just writing medleys and, um, and, you know, it's like, I think it just still stands up to me as the opening of it, you know, is just so intimate. It's just so, it just grabs you immediately. Um, and so, you know, it's that song is just so amazing to me. Um, maybe I'm amazed. My love two wonderful, amazing ballads, you know, maybe I'm amazed is like, it's one of those songs. It's like I said about, um, about never love the man. It's like, it's somehow it just reach. It's, it's got its fingers so squarely on the pulse of the human condition. You know, you just, maybe I'm amazed at the way I love you all the time. You know, it's like, it's just, Yes, if you've ever felt that, you felt that. And you know, he really he really taps into it. And Jet's just fucking great, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, just... I mean, all, all four of these songs are amazing. And yeah, I don't know how old McCartney is in 1970, but yeah, again, he takes that feeling and then in three words, maybe I'm amazed. Mm-hmm. Says it all. But let's uh I'm gonna drop the needle on the digital needle on Uncle Albert. Let's hear this. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. We're so sorry if we caused you any pain. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. But there's no one left at home, and I believe.
were like six or seven years old when that was on the radio. And I, I remember hearing it on the radio and thinking that this is, this is not something I've ever heard before. Yeah. I mean, does it, I mean, it's amazing. It's like I said, it opens up so intimately, you know, but it does, it seems to like clear out space too. It's like, you know, like the room, we still listen to the radio in the fucking car, you know? Yeah. And so, so, you know, it's like, it made the car bigger. So, AM radio. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's WFBG. Just, that's what we had. I know. Um, this doesn't even seem like a single, this song. It doesn't even seem like something that the record label would go, ah, no. Uncle Albert's the single. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's that kind of a thing where like my favorite Elton John album is um, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Deer Cowboy. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a single free kind of, you know, it had someone save my life tonight, but yeah. it's kind of a single free kind of record too. Definitely. Um, it's like, an, you know, it's, a, it's an all album track album. And this, this song is very much like that too. Um, you know, it's sort of in that same, that same kind of vibe. Um, I know you're a big police fan. Oh yeah. That band has a perfect discography. I, I, I've heard you say that. I think I heard you say that when you were, you were interviewing, um, uh, Andy. Yeah. And, um, and I agree with that a hundred percent. It's, uh, and although I would have liked more police music now, I'm okay that they left us with just those five perfect albums. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. I'm and I'm glad totally after the reunion tour that they didn't reconvene and try to make an album because yeah. it just wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you this. I've, I've told this story before. I hope I didn't tell you, but I'll tell you. Um, when I interviewed Andy Summers, he wouldn't turn his Zoom camera on, hmm. which is always strange. Yeah, it's right. like this. I mean, how intimate yeah. is that? Dude, that's that's my teacher. That was what was like teaching online. Terrible. <laughs> I Terrible. Know, like, you know, 24, 24 names. Yeah. So I can't I can't see his face, so I can't get any gauge. And before we start, he says, How long is this gonna take? Which is not a good sign when someone asked that. And I said, <laughs> it gets worse. I said, it's gonna take about 45 minutes. And then he said, oh, God, I hope it doesn't take that long. And then we're off and running. Yeah, you guys were great. I thought that was yeah, a great episode. I, oh, well, thank you. Because eventually it clicked with him that, oh, he's not just talking about Sting. Yeah, right. And Because I, I talked about the stuff that he's done. Yeah. Uh, you picked two amazing songs. Every little thing she does is magic. I just never, ever get sick of this song. So no, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect.
how do you feel about when I say that 80 through 85 is really an amazing sweet spot for music? Because there's so much, so many different artists got on the radio at that time. Well, I mean, you know, like that was the heyday of, of uh, MTV, right? right? And MTV had a, a really interesting effect in that way. It really um, did. That, that videos allowed, you know, stuff to be played together. I mean, like on it, you know, like think back to like, there was some, like there was a mixing of genre by way of video yeah. that just didn't fucking happen anywhere. I mean, it didn't happen like that anywhere else. It was a really, I think that it was the MTV factor for me. I mean, you had like, you know, you got the Buggles and you got fucking Zebra and you like, you know, like all of these weird acts that were all just melding together. ZZ Top, you know, gets yeah. in the middle of all of it. You know, it's like, for God's sake, you know, how did it, how did it happen? You know, it's, you know, meatloaf. Yeah. And then that's when, you know, cause we weren't getting that on again, the aforementioned WFBG, but then after MTV, the programming changed to mimic yeah. what we are seeing and hearing. Yeah. I think that was, there was a magic time there for MTV that it had this great effect um, on, you know, on uh, the listening public and then that fizzled and, you know, it went off, but, um, but there was that match. I, I, I agree with you. There was a magic moment there. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality. So you can be sure with upfront pricing. That's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You pick the song, The Weight by Pretenders. Oh. Now, talk about a song that I still don't know what the lyrics are. I would have to pull up no, the lyric sheet. I, I have I no idea. Like, I can't sing along with this in the car because I, no I don't know what's being said. Sounds but, like she's saying it hurts in there somewhere, but who knows? Yeah, like there's like every third word I might sing out loud, but here we go. The Weight. So good. That's great. If you're not rocking out when you hear that song, then you don't like music. It's, it's like that song rocks harder than any fucking song. I mean, that song just fucking rocks. The bass is great. Guitar is great. Drums. Her I vocals mean, are always stellar. Farndon and, and, and um, Honeyman Scott were killing it. I mean, like they were so good. I just started watching last night and watch on, um, on Hulu, the, the Sex Pistols. Pistols. Yeah, have you seen this? I haven't watched it yet. Is it good? Oh, you got to watch it because Chrissy Hines in it. I mean, it's like Chrissy Hines is a character. I didn't realize 
that they overlapped in the way that they did. Now, unless, of course, that's, you know, they wrote her into the story in some no, way. No, I think she did. I think she was uh, on the scene with the pistols. Did she Did she date Steve Jones, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I never knew that. And when it showed up, I'm like, I bet, I think I think that's going to be Chrissy Hind. And um, so just, uh, that's actually my favorite part of the show. And how's the actress who's playing Chrissy? She's fantastic. All right, cool. I mean, she's not like, like, you don't get like strong Chrissy Hind vibes, you know, but like, I mean, she's, you know, she's great in the piece. Yeah. Um, you know, she's Chrissy Hind before Chrissy Hind, you know, and, um, but, you know, it's like, now I just went, now I want that story. <laughs> yeah. Like, now I want like, okay, now how does she hook up with, you know, you, you know, at some point she's going off to, you know, she's, Malcolm hooks her up with a phone number for Mick Jones. So they're going to get together and write some songs together or whatever, you know, see if anything happens. And I'm like, well, that's a cool fucking thing, right? Yeah. Like, how about that? Like, that's a sweet, you know, like that. I'd like to be sitting in that room when those guys are trying to figure out a song together. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I like now I just want to, I want the story of the pretenders at the beginning with, you know, Honeyman Scott and Martin Chambers and, you know, Farndon. And I just want Maybe I, that could I be the next, the next one so. that Danny Boyle does. Maybe he could spin her off into pretenders. Yeah. Uh, that's thing, my number one. That's my number one dream guest is Chrissy Hind. Oh my God. You know, how about it? You know, so, I mean, again, genius. Um, <laughs> it's a really interesting story with this Hulu thing because this, the, the sex pistol story, because if you think about the Sex Pistols, they are a caricature. You know, I mean, they're the ultimate caricature band. You know, it's like their most famous member was a member that wasn't really even really a member. Right. But, you know, and and certainly not for being a member of the band, but just for being this sort of caricature of punk rock. Yeah. Um, and then the second is, you know, Johnny Rotten, same kind of thing. But this story is goes through Steve Jones. And so uh, consequently you get to sort of decaricaturize the experience of it. And I think that was a really smart storytelling um, move by these folks. I, I, it's a, I, I've, I've been really enjoying it. I'm halfway through it right now. Yeah. It's uh, it's based on his book. So mm -hmm. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, what do we got next? We got some Led Zeppelin. Cause you always got to have some Led Zeppelin on your playlist. You picked uh, the epic cashmere. Let's hear a little bit of this as I stumble over my words. Tell me something about Bump and Led Zeppelin. Well, you know, I was never really a Zeppelin fan until like when I got to LA and then in the evenings on, um, I guess it was on KLOS. It was the um, Get the Let Out. You know, they would yes. do every night. Yes. They would do the Get the Let Out. 
And so I was listening to Get the Let Out and, and um, you know, Kashmir, I mean, again, so back to Eminence Front and to the national anthem from Radiohead, it, this is another one of those relentless grooves. It just never leaves you. It just grinds away at you. And, you know, I mean, obviously I, I, that's something I love. It catches my ears. But, you know, like John Bonham on this song is just, you know, he is just, uh, you know, the quintessential rock drummer. Um, right. I mean, there's that it, the whole, there's, there's not a whole lot of rock songs that you go like, well, it's all about the drums. I mean, but this song is just all about the fucking drums. I mean, it's just, that's just it. It's just this amazing, you know, embodied connection to that song in that way. So for that reason alone, you know, like Kashmir is like, I can't get away from it. It's, it comes on and it just takes over my body. You know, my body just gets into sync with it. That's <laughs> I, I think just like everybody else, you know. Bump, what year did you move to Michigan from, did you move from Pennsylvania to Michigan? No, no. So we were, I moved from North Carolina where I did my PhD at Chapel Hill and then moved out to Stanford uh, for two years and taught at Stanford for two years. That's where Bennett was born. So Sawyer was born at, in Chapel Hill and Bennett was born at Stanford. And then, um, then we left Stanford to go to Michigan state. Now so. you got your PhD. You're a doctor of rock, I assume. Yes, exactly. Um, no. So what, all, yeah. what all do you have? You have your, you have your, Give me all the degrees. Oh, I got an undergraduate degree from Penn State. In, I got in what? In general arts and sciences. Okay. Okay. Then, then we get bullshit in bullshitting. Um, and then I got a, a master's degree in English from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, IUP. That's where Jules and I met. All right. And then I got another master's degree in linguistics from UNC Chapel Hill. Jesus and then Christ. a PhD in English. Uh, from UNC Chapel Hill. I've done nothing. Yeah. This is I incredible. To, yeah, I Although it, it, it makes my head swim, all the schooling. Yeah, I see, you know, I don't know. It's You must like it. You must like. I'm still in school, for God's sake. I mean, that's yeah. if, when you become a professor, you just never leave college, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think back when I was, you know, trying to be a rock star, my fantasy was that in my retirement, I would go and, you know, get an advanced degree somewhere and, you know, and teach for fun. And, um, and, you know, it didn't really work out that way. It's, you know, I wound up doing it for a career. And, um, but there's, you know, I, I refer to myself as a hope junkie. I, you know, make guitars and stuff and I call them hope junkie. And, um, and that's one of the things I noticed from, you know, being in college towns, especially moving back to state college after living in Los Angeles, you know, you grew up in a, spl- in a place like Hollidaysburg yeah. and people go, so what do you do? And you go, well, I'm a singer and a songwriter and, you know, um, and they're like, yeah, but what do you really fucking do? Right. Um, you know, and um and you go, well, what I really fucking do is move to Los Angeles. So you move to Los Angeles and you run into somebody and they go, well, what do you do? And you go, well, I'm a singer songwriter. And they go, who are you working with? And that difference, you That's know, way different. Yeah. It's the big difference, you know? So 
the it's the this thing that you say that you want to do well that's a thing that can be done in the world and so say more about that as opposed to oh fucking shut up and like you'll never amount to anything like i couldn't live in you'll never amount to anything maybe right. that was going to be true but i couldn't live with that so you know one of the things i noticed in los angeles is that happened but the other thing i noticed was that's what a college town is because everybody's coming to college with whatever the hell dream they have. Right. They want to be, they want to be, you know, a, a, an actor or they want to be a doctor or they want to be a nuclear physicist or they want to be a whatever the fuck, you know, um, an entrepreneur. And all of those things are viable things, you know, yeah. in, in a, and so that's why I say, like, I'm a hope junkie. Like I'm, I realized that about myself that, that, I didn't love the big city, but I did love the hope. And mm -hmm. that was something that I, I found that I could find that I could connect with in a college town. So I'm like, well, I better be a professor. <laughs> so, yeah. So through your students, you're still living in that hope, which is great. Yeah. I mean, students and colleagues and, you know, and through myself, yeah. I'm still going, what am I going to do next? You know, like what's the, What's my next thing? What am I going to finish next? And what, you know, then what happens after that one's done? And, um, you know, it's great. You know, that's how I, you gotta I, be, that's how, that's how everyone should be. There shouldn't be any complacency. Yeah. And when there is complacency, you know, like sometimes you get complacent, but sure. you know, like you, you realize that there's going to, there's probably, hopefully, you know, is talk about this with, with actually mentioned Butch Walker earlier, but Butch said, you know, like, it's really weird. It's like, every time I show up to, to make the music, I go like, am I gonna, it's a, is it gonna happen again? Or am I done? Is right. it all used up? Or is the magic gonna happen one more time? Yeah. You know, you just never know. And, um, you know, I think that, that that sort of sums it up for me too, is that, you know, you just go like, well, are the ideas gonna keep coming? You know, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> well, it's very, it's very difficult to get out of, our hometown. Mm. You really have to want to get out of it. I think a lot of people though, in our graduating class actually did. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it's, and it's not a slight to anyone who stayed there. No, because, because it's, it's a nice place to live. Uh, That's beautiful. I like growing up there, but mm -hmm. I just always knew that there wasn't anything there for me. Yeah, right. I think so, you know that's the thing. If you're if you're aiming at other, there's a there's a limited pool of things that are um, legitimate things to do. Right. And you know, both of us were you know, and and our dear friend Rob, you know, we were wanting things that were outside of of you know those legitimate things. Right. You know, so we had to go elsewhere to find places where they said, yeah, well, that's yeah, you can do that. And you were a big catalyst. Uh, on me being able to think, oh, you can move somewhere else and live on your own and pursue something. Yeah. Because you did it way before I did it, before I moved to Chicago to pursue stand-up comedy. So thank yeah. you. Well, I, you know, I, I think that we needed each other at that point, you know, a lot because, you know, we needed to see other, we needed to have contemporaries that were going for it. There was you know? no one else to talk to about nonsense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not nonsense, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, all right. Now, look, I don't want to put you on the spot, but the guitars are in the room. 
how comfortable are you picking up one of those guitars and playing us out of this episode? All right. Well, what do you want to hear? Well, that's ridiculous. I could name anything. I want to hear Mother Father from Escape. Okay. That's what, funny. What's, what's in your repertoire? That's a good song, actually. It's a great song. And the Escape album, the first time I ever heard it was at Bump Holberter's house in his bedroom. And yeah. I think we played that about six times straight through because it sounded so much different from Infinity, Evolution, and Departure. Yeah. We just kept flipping the sides. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was a listening experience that I always remember. Yeah. Because we were just like blown away. I mean, I was blown away. You might have been blown away musically as a musician. And I was just blown away as a fan that I couldn't believe this album. Yeah. I just saw Neil Sean on on, on Instagram post a thing. He has a, a guitar that he has made. And it says, for his 50th anniversary in, in Journey, he's played every single Journey show ever you know he's and, the one yeah i know it's amazing i mean you know yeah i mean i loved that band i mean back then and my god escape still what a great record so I mean, good. it really was and i loved i loved all three sort of iterations of journey yeah you know of that original journey um uh i listened to that stuff a lot um but yeah i mean um my god that record was just i mean it it's still, it's just a really strong record. Yeah. I mean, don't stop believing into stone and love into who's crying now. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Stone and love is probably my favorite song on that record. I uh, mean, it's just such a good rocking song. I yeah. Mean, it's just, just a great riff, you know, great song. Now, now bump, this will be the play out song. So let's tell you're not a big social media guy, but you are on Instagram. Do you mind if our listeners follow you on Instagram? It's, you know, you can follow me on Instagram. I've got a SoundCloud page. I've, you know, there's tell us you know, what they, tell us, tell us the what's your handle on Instagram. It's I am Dr. Bump, I believe, is the is okay. my Instagram. Yeah. And, the, and if we just Google SoundCloud Bump Holbritter, will we find yeah. it? Yeah, should. Right. I'll find a link and I'll put it up in conjunction with this episode. And right. you can follow us at Rock Solid Show and go to rocksolidpodcast.com for all things about the show. Okay. Bump, I think we covered a lot of stuff for the story of Bump. Um, you also had 15 must-have artists and albums, but then the list had 29 albums on it. It said 15, but then you would like double and triple up. It's, how do you pick the best album? But some people that, you know, like, like, you know, how do you pick? I, you know, yeah, like, you how do you pick? Who you had, who are you? Who's next? Quadrophenia. Uh, I mean, Jeff- it was three. Like how did like those three are just it? I mean, like how are you going to pick one over the other one? I mean, come on. Yeah, Jeff Beck, you had there and back, blow by blow, wired. I mean, I get it. I understand. It's tough. Totally. If it's like, a classic, you, it's a classic. It's a classic. It's a classic. You know. So it All goes. Right. So this is going to be the last thing we hear on this episode. I want to thank you for sitting down and doing it. I want to thank you for being open and honest and letting me ask you. Uh, all kinds of stuff. It's very weird to talk to you as uh, an interviewer and an interviewee, but I hope that it came across more as a conversation than me grilling you. Oh, it's awesome, man. It's, I, you know, during during the lockdown, I spent, you know, it, like it, we weren't allowed to go anywhere. Right. I would come down at night, you know, I work out assiduously every day. I was down here in the basement, I was working out and I would work out either with Ted Lasso on the TV or with you, 
wow. you know, I listened to one of your podcasts because like, it was just fun for, it was just like, Oh, Hey, Pat's here. Well, and I you know, and well, I appreciated it. I mean, it was really great. It was like Pat's here. Oh, and he brought Steve Lukather. Uh, <laughs> that's fucking great. Um, oh, it's John Anderson today. That's great. Thanks, Pat. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was like, it was, you know, especially during that time when it was like, you know, you weren't able to really be with people. Right. Um, uh, I really, your podcast, um, really helped me out a lot. It's, you know, it's sort of, it was like, I'm just gonna go hang out with Pat for, you know, for an hour or two. Well, work out. Well, thank you. And the working out paid off because you're ripped right now. <laughs> I've seen the pictures you're posting with the biceps and the chest and the, yeah. you're, you're I'm ripped. Old. I'm an old man. No, you're not. You got, the, you, got the, you got great hair. You had a nice jawline. Gray hair. You're right. I have gray I said hair. Great. A lot of it. A lot of gray hair. All right. So here yeah. we go. Here's the play out. Is it an original? Is it a cover? What are we going to do? Um, Boy, we could do one of the, but you know what? I'm going to play an original and I'm going to play an original because in the second verse, and it's a short one, Okay. Uh, but in the second verse, you'll probably recognize uh, an important landmark in, in our collective lives. All right. So this is um, this is uh, a little something that I call nothing. Didn't see you again today, so nothing's new. Should have got up the nerve to try. The way I used to Didn't have a chance to say That I miss you Should have picked up the phone to try If only to tell you That all is forgiven And all is erased But with all that's behind us Nothing all this nothing's in the way And under the secrets I've sworn to share I hide the blade And don't I just Treasure the truth laid bare And I paint the pictures That bandage the sore Hope that I won't see nothing Driving to our hometown, but you weren't there. Took me a look at those chimney rocks. They're still up there. Didn't think for one moment that you might care. Just seemed a nice enough thing to keep me aware that all's been forgiven. And all's been erased But when all is behind us Nothing 
Too much nothing's in the way And under the secrets I've sworn to share I have the blades and don't I just Treasure the truth laid bare And I paint the pictures That bandage the sore Hope to God that I won't see nothing Thanks, Pat.